I read a story this last week. It's a, an Arabic story, kind of a folktale or fable about a boy who sold wisdom. And so his family needed money, and he was trying to figure out how he could kind of provide and help. And so he went out to the marketplace and set up a stall where he would sell wisdom. All right, and so everyone else is selling, you know, kind of their wares or wool or silk or eggs or their livestock. And here's this little boy is trying to sell wisdom. And so he gets mocked by everybody. And they go, well, what good is that? How is that going to help me? How is that going to help me in the field? How is that going to feed my kids? How is that going to put food on our table? And the story kind of goes on. I won't tell the whole thing, but, you know, eventually the people come to a place where they need wisdom. And so then they have to go to the little boy and he helps them. But don't you wish it was kind of like that, that when you had a problem, when something came in your life and you thought, I wish I had enough wisdom to know what to do, you could just go to the store and get it. Or you could go online to Amazon or stop by Homeland or Walmart or wherever you like to go and shop and throw some wisdom in your cart and as soon as you got it, then you would be good. I wish we could do that. Well, I was also reading, don't worry, I found a psychology magazine, and someone had an even better idea. It was definitely better because it was free, right? So I like free. And so their idea of how you can, we can all just gain wisdom is if you just took a few moments and you just pictured yourself as the wisest person in the world. And you just picture yourself, you're the wisest person in the world, and someone comes to you and asks for your best piece of wisdom, and imagine what you would say. And just do that every day, and you are going to become, and follow your own advice. Then suddenly you're now the wisest person in the world. Well, I don't think that quite is going to work. But th so there's all these different ideas, right, of where we think wisdom can come from. But what does the Scripture say? What does God's Word say about how we can gain wisdom? It's not something we can go buy at the store, and I also don't think it's something we can even just find in and of ourselves. But where can we find it? And God's Word gives us the answer. And we're going to look at that in the book of Proverbs. We're going to study, we looked at Psalms um, in June, and we're going to spend a lot of July in the book of Proverbs. And we're not going to go through the whole book of Proverbs. We're just going to look at a couple places. And this morning, we're going to be at the beginning of Proverbs in chapter 1. We're really going to focus in just on these first seven verses, and we're going to try and answer this question of how do we gain wisdom? And we'll, how, to that end, we'll look at kind of the goal of wisdom, the source of wisdom, and then our purpose of wisdom. Those will be kind of the three things that we're going to examine about wisdom this morning. Um, so if you're, you're able, um, if you've got your Bible in front of you, go ahead and stand with me um, as we read from God's Word from the book of Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand in a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would be here this morning and that you would help us. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful um, weather outside. We thank you for all the things that you have given us. We thank you especially for the, the gift of your word and the gift of your son, Jesus. I ask that this morning you would help us to hear and to receive your gifts to us. Teach us how we can gain wisdom and teach us how to be more like your son. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
So first, let's talk about the, the goal, uh, not just the goal of wisdom, but really about the goal of the book of Proverbs. And the goal of Proverbs, of this book that God has given us, is to make us wise. The goal of the book of Proverbs is to make us wise. In this book, it's written or composed primarily from King Solomon. It tells us that right away in the beginning, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. And Solomon was the son of David. If you need a a refresher on your Israelite kings or your history, David was the, the big king. He was not the first king. That was Saul, but he was the most significant and important king. But Solomon was seen as really the king who led Israel through their greatest period. When they were the biggest, when their land was the most wealthy, when they had the most territory and the most power, Solomon was the one who was in charge. And during the beginning of his reign, or before then, God actually came to Solomon and granted him a a boon, or said he would answer his prayer. Anything that he wanted from God, God was willing to give him. And Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. And so God responds and says, okay, and you know what? I'm going to let you be the wisest person who ever lived. And so that was Solomon. And so this book is not just a, a book of good quotes. Okay, it's not just an example of here's all the best Proverbs we could find from all sorts of different sources and let's slap them together and then call it good. No, th- in this book what we have is we have the finest examples of wisdom that you can get from the wisest person who ever lived. Now, Solomon didn't come up with all of these sayings by himself, or he didn't write every single word, but he composed most of it at least, right? And these are, everything that's in here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there's also, we know there's places near the end of the book that come from other kings. There's King Lemuel, there's Agur, there's other sources that this wisdom comes from. But we know, not just because Solomon did it, but because it's in God's word and God inspired it, that all of this is the best place that you can find wisdom. You, you can't get wisdom at Amazon, but you can find it in your Bibles. And you can find it especially in the book of Proverbs. And this book opens, to make it clear, its goal is not to impress us with how smart Solomon is. The goal of the book isn't to make us just go fly back on our backs and go, oh my gosh, wow, that's amazing. This person's so smart. How do they do that? The goal is that we would all become wise. In reading it, in verse 2, it's kind of, it does these two, right? To know, to receive, to give prudence. That's really kind of a purpose statement behind this book. Why? Well, why did Solomon write this book? Why are these Proverbs here? Why did God include this and not something else? Well, the goal is that we would know wisdom and instruction. That we would understand words of insight in verse 2. The hope is that we would read it and not just be able to have a wisdom detector that we can tell when someone tells us something, if that's wisdom or not. The goal is that we ourselves would also become wise. And this wisdom is available to everyone. In verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, to knowledge and direction to the youth. Let me give you my own translation of that. This is wisdom for idiots and children. (laughs) Okay, and that might sound mean on its face, but it's meant to be an invitation I almost thought about calling this series Wisdom for Dummies, right? But decided not to. Bree talked me out of it. (laughs) But one of the great beauties of the book of Proverbs is that it is understandable for all of us. Okay, the smallest child can understand some of the things that are here in the book of Proverbs. You don't need the fanciest seminary degree. You don't have to have the biggest education. You don't have to have read a book in the last 80 years to understand this book. But this book is also filled with so much wisdom and depth, as all of God's Word is, that even if that is you, verses 5 and 6, let the wise hear and increase in learning. 
And the one who understands, obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying in the words of the wise in their riddles. This book is for dummies, but it's also for smarties too. Everybody can come here and find wisdom. You can read it as a child. And this is true of all of God's Word, and this is some of the most beautiful things about the Bible, is you can read it as a child and understand Jesus. You can get the most important, most significant things that you need, and you can then spend the rest of your entire life, no matter how smart you are, continually discovering more and more and more about Jesus and about His wisdom and about God's Word. So that's, that's the goal. And there are things in God's Word that are hard. There are riddles in the book of Proverbs that maybe a child can understand, but also we could come back to and then spend decades pondering and thinking about the implications of. And so the goal of the book of Proverbs, really the goal of this series is, hopefully I'm calling it ancient wisdom, is this is ancient wisdom from God, but it's wisdom for us today. And so hopefully as we read this, as we study it, as we look at it, we can all be a little wiser, or hopefully we can at least gain some wisdom. So that's the goal, but how does it work? How can this book actually give us wisdom, or where does wisdom actually come from? Because wisdom ultimately doesn't just come from this book alone. The source of wisdom, as it tells us in verse 7, or point number 2 if you're taking notes, is that wisdom comes from fearing God. Wisdom comes from fearing God. Verse 7, this is the key, not just of this morning, but really the key of understanding the entire book of Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is an interesting and significant phrase. For those of you, if you've grown up in church or if you've been around church or been a Christian a long time, it's probably a phrase you're very familiar with. Maybe a phrase you've heard of a lot but it's definitely kind of an antiquated phrase, isn't it? It's an old idea. It's not a phrase that we often use. It's not a phrase that we use when we're talking to each other or even encouraging each other. We don't often talk about the fear of God. This phrase itself, it offends our modern ears, and we don't quite know what to do with it. I've heard so many sermons, and maybe you have too, about the book of Proverbs or even just about this verse of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. But so much of what I heard for so long was all of these preachers and teachers kind of qualifying and explaining away what this fear of God means. Well, it says fear. It doesn't really mean fear, right? And, how it, and really, they would spend all this time saying how the fear of God means everything but fear is what it felt like. And in one sense, this is true, right? The Bible isn't using fear in the sense that we normally do in the way that I am afraid of heights. Okay, I don't like heights, don't like them at all. Okay, I don't like to even get up on a ladder. I make Brie hang everything on our house. Um, even when she was like seven, eight months pregnant, she was standing on the chair hanging up our curtains because I just, I, I don't do it. I don't like it. Flew this week, going to fly again. It makes me nervous. I want to look out the window. This is really high off the ground. I can't think about it. Okay, that, that's how we usually talk about fear, right? Is in the sense of, of terror. And so it's not quite that fear. That isn't exactly what God means. But the problem is that we go far. This verse isn't saying that we should be totally paralyzed in fear like that when it comes to God. Or that even thinking about God should make us fall on our faces and just cry out and scream. It's not that. But what can happen is we go too far when we're trying to downplay the fear of God to make us comfortable or to make us feel good. 
when we try and domesticate God, when we try and trim away or cut off all the things of God that make us a little uncomfortable. Because our natural inclination is not to worship God as He is. Our natural inclination isn't even to see God as He is, it's to see God as we want to see Him. It's to change the things about Him that we don't like. So when we read stuff in, in His Word or in the Bible and I think, oh, that, that sounds different than what I think. It must not mean what it says. It must mean something different because I don't like what that is. That's what we do when it comes to God. We're constantly changing or trying to shift Him around. We don't want to serve a God who is scary. We want a nice God. We want a God who just wants the best for me, who makes me comfortable, who just really cares about me and loves me and is always there to lift me up and encourage me and doesn't make me feel bad ever at all. And some of those things are, are true, and God is all of those things in some moments, but He is way more than that. And He still is a God to be feared. He really is God. True fear of God, it means living in awe and wonder at a sense of who God is. It means if you stop to think about the God that we worship, and think about the fact that He is God, that He's the infinite He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He, he knows everything. He sees everything. He is in control of everything that happens. Nothing that happens is outside of his will. Even just trying to, crap, to wrap your mind around that can break it. And then we fight and argue about it. Why? Because ultimately we just don't even understand because he is God. If you think about all of that, that should give us a sense of awe that we should be, in a, little, we should be a little on edge when we're in his presence. So we recognize that, wow, we are in the presence of God. It should make us pause. We shouldn't get too comfortable. We're allowed to be comfortable. Hebrews tells us we can go before the throne of grace. We can enter into God's very throne room with confidence. Not because of who we are, but because of the blood of Jesus. But there still should be a sense that we shouldn't just, you know, walk in there and, hey, can I sit in your chair? Cool, God, what's up? How you doing? Let's fist bump. Like there's a sense where we've lost that awe of God. There's a classic scene in Narnia, right, where Aslan, he's kind of the Christ God figure, he's a lion, and he's portrayed as that. And one character asks another, like, hey, well, is that, well, it's kind of scary. Are you sure that's safe? Maybe hanging out with this lion? The character says, well, no, of course it's not safe. But he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. We can... Trust Him. And that's the same thing that's, that's true of God. Is the true of God. You know, he, he's, he isn't safe, but He is good. And He is the roaring lion of Judah. He can crush nations and God could destroy all of our souls from existence with a word and the snap of His fingers. He has the power to do that, but why doesn't He? Because He's good. Because He loves us. But the fact of who He is, we should have some, maybe we should have some reverence or fear when we think of Him. I'm really indebted in thinking about this um, to John Bunyan for helping me um, kind of reclaim and think through this idea of the fear of God. Sydney and Wendy got me a small book about just John Bunyan's preaching. He wrote a whole book and preached often on the fear of God. And he talks so much about why it's good to think about God this way and how that actually helps and empowers us. The reality is if we do not fear God, we can never truly be wise. If we do not live in a sense of awe and reverence and wonder at who God is, if we live and we just ignore God completely, you can never be wise. It's not going to work. There's a documentary um, that I love. The first time I saw it, I thought it was kind of a joke, but it's not. It's, it's very true. It's called The Grizzly Man. 
and it follows this um, nature enthusiast named Timothy Treadwell. He was a former drug addict who um, kind of found salvation and, and got sober um, through grizzly bears. And so he just became uh, obsessed and just loved bears. And so he dedicated himself to, um, to teaching people, to teaching children about bears, to promoting their welfare, to caring for them. And then one of the things that he would do is he would spend many of his summers or almost all of his summer camping among bears in Katmai National Park in Alaska. Now, part of the problem for Timothy was that he didn't have any fear of bears. He really loved them. He named them. He saw them all the time because they, they meant so much to him. He would care for them. He, he would be with them. And they, he seemed to have this almost supernatural or another way to describe it, connection with bears where they seemed to, to like him too. But because he, he loved them so much and he didn't fear them, he would break every summer that would go on, he would break more and more of the rules for his safety. He didn't use the bear spray because he did it once and he saw that it hurt the bear and that hurt him too much. So he thought, no, I can't do that. He didn't put up fences or things around his tent to keep him safe because, no, I love the bears. I don't need to be afraid. And so tragically, as you can assume, one summer, him and his girlfriend were mauled to death and eaten by a grizzly bear. And now you can go and say, well, duh, I could have told you that was going to happen as soon as you told me that what this was about and where this was going. So all of us go, well, that's, that's really unwise. How can you do that? Well, why is that so dumb? Bears are something you should fear. You should be afraid, even if it's good and it's happy. You should know at the back of your mind, this is a bear. Maybe it likes me, maybe we're good, but at the end of the day, this is a bear and I am not a bear. And if the bear wants to eat me, it is probably going to eat me unless I've got something to keep it from doing that. We need to have the, the same kind of fear of God, I think, in one sense where we need to not forget who God is. God isn't a kitty cat. God is not your pet. Yes, God is our, our friend. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God cares for you. Yes, you can have an intimate relationship with God. But at the end of the day, you need to remember the fear of God. You need to remember who He is. You need to not forget that. And what Proverbs shows us is that wisdom is actually birthed out of this fear. That it is the beginning. This is where wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from other sources. Wisdom doesn't come from anywhere else other than beginning with acknowledging and fearing and recognizing who God is and then living like that's true. But the world or other people would say that wisdom comes from other sources. Right? Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and what? Wise. Right? Sorry, that's not going to do it. It's good advice, you know. It, it sounds nice. It's actually pretty good to live that way. But look, even if you find the perfect sleeping window and you go to bed just at the right time so you're not too tired and then you wake up early and you get the whole day and you're really productive, even if you do that, that is not automatically going to make you the wisest person in the world. I'm sorry. Wisdom also doesn't come from experience. Just because you, you get older and have lots of experience, it doesn't automatically make you wise. I'm sure we could all picture somebody. Don't say their name out loud. You can picture someone who's lived a while, who's had plenty of experiences, but has not really quite grown up yet. Maybe you're continually amazed at how unwise they are. You should know better. Why are you doing that again? 
Wisdom also doesn't come from fancy degrees or reading lots of books. If reading books alone could make you wise, then I'm, I'm good on my way, right? Because I like to read all the time. I'm constantly trying to, to read and to learn and to gain. And so if that, if that did it I, and it worked for sure, I would read even more because that's, that's what I want. I would love that. But wisdom is not like that. Wisdom is not just gaining knowledge. And the book of Proverbs doesn't work that way either. You can't treat this book like it's a magic code. If I just read one a day and then did it, that alone is going to make me wise. Ultimately, wisdom comes from fearing God. It comes from living in all times in awe of Him. It means believing that God actually is true and alive. If we want to be wise, we have to start there. You have to start here. Because if you ignore God, it will not work. There's no other place to go. And the only source of, our tr of true wisdom is from fearing God. Point number three is similar to this, and it's tied to this. It's kind of also the purpose of our wisdom. Without, wisdom without Jesus is worthless. Wisdom without Jesus is worthless. Uh, verse number three also tells us part of why this, this book is written. It is written that we would instrive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. Part of the goal of Proverbs is that we would learn not just how to be wise, not just that we would gain intellectual knowledge, but that we would learn how to be righteous. We would not just learn about what righteousness and justice and equity is, but that we would then also learn how to be that so that our lives would be guided in every single area by the righteousness of God. That by fearing God, we would fear Him in every avenue and every part of our lives. And you notice it's not just righteousness, but it's also justice. Because righteousness and justice are almost always tied together. Especially in the Old Testament. Especially in the prophets. You will see them continually say righteousness and justice. Or, or truth and, and justice. All of these things are always there. Because you can't be a righteous person unless you're also a just person. You cannot just live rightly between you and God and that's it and then treat everyone around you however you want. That righteousness and justice have to go together. You can't live correctly towards God and not live correctly towards other people. Those are connected. And you also can't be righteous if you're not concerned about justice for others. So, so wisdom has to lead not just to becoming righteous but to also becoming a just person. And what we know especially from the life of Solomon, is that wisdom alone cannot make you righteous. If you know his stories, the wisest man who ever lived, right? He asked for it and God gave it. God says, there's never even going to be anybody after you who is just as wise. But how did Solomon live? What was his life? How much righteousness and justice was there? Well, did it, did it lead to him being like Jesus? No, it did not. 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. You never heard that before. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I knew it was a lot. I remember 300. I didn't realize it was, you know, basically 1,000. Despite being commanded by God not to marry women who worship other gods, he does. Most of those women are not... Israelite women are not women, not even women from foreign nations who have come and worship and repented and are following after God. And yes, I mean, despite, and the biblical model, too, one husband, one wife, and yes, you see the patriarchs, 
multiple times. They have more than one wife, but if you look, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It always is saying how that was terrible and all of the problems and all the sin that led from that. But the fact of Solomon's life tells us something about him. There is no way, I feel very confident in saying this, you cannot have that many wives and be a righteous person or be a just person. You just, you can't. That's a person who views women as tools for political power. Views, oh, I can use them and then I can, I can get this. Then that's going to help me here. Or, or views women and wives as tools for his own desires and conquest. And it's not just the influence, because he married this many women, that they then led him to worship other gods, but the kind of person who has this many wives and concubines is someone who is not worshiping God and is worshiping after other gods already. It's already very easy to do that. So all of the wisdom in the world did not keep him from worshiping God alone, even though he knew better, even though he knew way better, even though he knew how unwise every time he got married again, Back of his mind, I'm sure he knew, this is not the wisest thing I could be doing. But that didn't stop him. All the wisdom in the world cannot make you righteous. You can have a bunch of wisdom. You can have a bunch of intelligence, and you can have not very much righteousness. Often those who, who know better seem like they don't. Along Solomon, alongside that, you can picture right, pastors or theologians or, or big, well-known believers. Picture some men and women that God has just given incredible gifts to. Right, there's people like this who, who preach way better than I could ever dream of doing. Or the way they write, it is like poetry. You just read a sentence from them and it's like, it like just blows your mind with its beauty. You don't even know the kind of mind that could do that. Or the insight that some of these people have into Scripture where they say something, you're like, wow, I've read that passage a thousand times and I've never seen that before, but now I see it. They're right. It's right there. How could this person do this? We know plenty of people like this. But then years later, truth comes out. You find out that some of these people were addicted to power, that they were jerks and tyrants. Find out that some of them became greedy and started using their gifts not to build up God's kingdom, but to enrich themselves and to build up their own kingdoms. Or some used their influence and power to put them place in places where they could abuse and take advantage of women and children. I don't need to name names because that would take too long. All of us could think of a number of names. I'm sure we could even name people who were influential to us. And then we saw this happen. It's shameful and it's worth lamenting, but it should also remind us that you can know a lot about your Bible and not very much about Jesus. The Pharisees knew their Bibles really, really well, and yet when the Messiah came and was in front of them, they killed him. The disciples were walking with Jesus every single day, and yet they continually didn't get it. Wisdom alone without Jesus is not going to make you righteous. You could know theology backwards and forwards and have all of the answers to all of the questions and still not be a person who is like Jesus. Here, the reality is that all the godly, even all the godly wisdom in the world can't make you like Jesus. You can know plenty. You could know even more than anyone around you and yet still be filled with sin. Maybe even if I could wave a wand or if, I could, if God granted the prayer for you, the same prayer that he gave to Solomon, where he would make you the second wisest person who ever lived. And you had everything. 
right? Maybe you could, what would you do if you had that kind of wisdom? Maybe you go, man, just elect me, get me an office so I can fix all these idiots and all the things they're not doing because now I've got the answers. Maybe you can make exactly the right kind of investments in the market that you need to so you could gain wealth and then you maybe even use that and you help our community and make things even better, solve all of the problems. You could do all of those things if you had all of that wisdom. But Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you did all of that and you didn't have Jesus... You've missed it, which also means that if you, you're not very wise, if all of the wisdom in the world doesn't lead to salvation and righteousness, then it ends up being pretty dumb. If you're the kind of person you did all of those things, if you literally saved the world, but didn't know Jesus, that would be heartbreaking. Now, how many of you in this room, do not, don't raise your hand here, but, but I'm going to say this, how many of you in this room might consider yourself, you know, I, I, I'm kind of dumb. Now, don't poke the person next to you. Don't point at somebody across the room either, right? But, you know, you just might admit, you know, I, I know I'm just not, I'm not that smart. I'm definitely not the smartest person in any room that I come into. You know, not really great at math, didn't like school, never went to college. You know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's even kind of painful to think about. But here, here's what I want to say. The dumbest believer in the world is wiser than the smartest non-Christian. The dumbest believer in the world is smarter than the wisest non-Christian. Now, why? I don't, because you're getting the most important thing right. Because if you gain everything that the world has, and maybe you can't even do two plus two, but, but if you know I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus, and I'm going to fear God, and that's all you have, that's more than you could ever need. That's what this, this reminds us. You know, for the Christian, you might not have anything down here, but you do have Jesus. That's the most important thing. But the gospel is foolishness to the world. We talked about this a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians, didn't we? This is one of the themes that kept coming up in the book over and over and over because the world considers the idea of Jesus foolish. And it is foolish in a sense. You know, what do we do? If you think about it, we worship a homeless Palestinian Jew who was a carpenter and then walked away from his business. He's kind of a freeloader. There had to be women and rich people who supported him and all of his 12 buddies as they just wandered around and talked. We believe that, that God came down and he put on flesh. And he was born. He was incarnate in a virgin in a small town called Bethlehem. And then he lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. Never thought anything wrong, never lost his temper when he shouldn't have at something that was wrong. He never was unkind or cruel. But he lived a perfect life and he preached about the kingdom of God. And he miraculously healed the sick. He made the lame walk and the blind could see. And he loved sinners. Now he didn't come down to tell everyone how we should just be nicer to each other and all love each other. He came and said, hey, God loves you, and the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in me. And he was executed as a criminal by the religious leaders of his day and by the government who feared him. And they saw him as a threat to their authority. 
even though he wasn't interested in the kind of authority and power that we like to fight over. And we believe that the God that we serve, that Jesus was nailed to a cross naked and was mocked in his death. They put a crown on his head to, to mock him and put a sign over top of him that said, King of Kings. They thought, what a foolish kingdom that kingdom of God is. And we believe that he really died. He was completely dead. He wasn't just faking. He wasn't just pretending to be dead. It wasn't just a couple of moments and they smacked him with the defibrillator and brought him back. That his soul had left his body and he was stuck in the grave for three days. And we believe that he came back to life. That he was resurrected. That he broke the power of sin and death itself. And he came out of Sheol bringing with him all of the captives who put their faith in him. And we believe because of that God-man, because of Jesus, that there is salvation and eternal life to any who would come. That is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness to believe. That is foolishness to believe that this book really is the very Word of God. That we haven't lost it. It's not corrupted. It might be difficult to understand sometimes, but that these aren't man's words. These are God's words. They tell us what we're supposed to know and how we're supposed to live. It's foolishness to the world. It's arrogant to the world to say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. It's foolishness to pray towards God. It's foolishness to spend your time all day on a Sunday morning, especially on a holiday when you could be doing plenty of other stuff instead of listening to the words supposedly from God written thousands of years ago. That's foolishness. Why don't you go have a burger and relax? It's foolishness to the world to believe that surrendering your life to Jesus doesn't just make you feel really good, but it actually grants you salvation. We believe that's true. Without Jesus, all the wisdom of the world is is worthless. If you have all of the wisdom in the world and you miss Jesus... You've totally missed it. You've forfeited your soul. If you come to church just because you think I can help you become a better person, if you think you can listen to these sermons and maybe just take the Jesus stuff out or the religious stuff out, maybe just take some good hints and just kind of apply those and see how that works, that ain't going to work. You're going to be incredibly disappointed. I ain't that wise anyway. Reality is without Jesus, all of our wisdom is worthless. Jesus is our only hope. How do we gain wisdom? We gain wisdom by fearing God and by acknowledging Jesus. If you get to the end of your life, you're standing there before the throne, you know, the heavenly gates, and then you don't get to go in. That would make everything you just did before that moment foolish. That is why wisdom starts there. Ultimately, really, wisdom is rooted in the gospel. And then for believers, what does that mean? It means that for us to be wise too, we need to be living every single moment of our lives as if Jesus really is true, as if Jesus really did live, as if Jesus really will one day ride in on that white horse and rule and reign again. You know, you can think about that, uh, that question Right? Maybe you've heard this before. You know, you get to the heavenly gates and they stand there and they ask, okay, well, why should I let you inside? What do you say? Honestly, I've always hated that question. Um, selfishly, I don't like it because I'm very analytical, right? 
So I, I, I need to know what is the right, perfect answer. Okay, what exactly, very theology, right, too. So every word matters when you're getting into doctrinal statements or you're speaking about things. So I want to define all of the words. So, so what exactly do I need to say? Which words do I need to use? How, you know, how can I do that? I've got to get this right, right? So I'm, I'm a thinker. So that question bothers me. The question also, for sure, requires great wisdom, doesn't it? That sounds like a question only a wise person could have the best answer for. That when you hear one, you go, ah, yes, that, that's, that's the one. I should have said that. All right, let me take it back. I remember sometimes being, being young, going to campgrounds or places, and people are setting up trying to tell people about Jesus, and they asked me that question, and I thought, you know, I gave them an answer, and then I tell them, oh, they didn't like my answer. They don't think I'm, I'm saved. I'm a preacher's kid. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. I, I know the right answer. Okay, tell me what you wanted me to say. Okay, yes, I, I think that already. All right, so these things can be frustrating. But I heard a story from um, Alistair Bagg. He's a pastor up in Cleveland that, that I really love. And he talked about someone who answered this question. It was a man who didn't have a lot of wisdom. And he was talking about, uh, or Alistair was talking about the thief on the cross. Maybe he was a terrorist, the man who died next to Jesus. And he just said, you know, I, I really want to ask that guy. Dude, how'd you get here? How'd you get in? I mean, you, you didn't have anything to offer God. Okay, you were dying. You had maybe moments, maybe hours left of your life. You couldn't do anything. You never went to church. You, never, you didn't have good theology, right? You, know, you didn't have any of this. How, how'd you get here? How'd you get in? And, and I love, because what Alistair would say too, is if we ever answer that question and we start with I, we're wrong. Well, well I believed. Or, well, I went to church. Well, I did these things. Well, I put my faith in all these things. No, 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 that's wrong. It always has to start with Jesus. And so he described the, this man coming up to the throne. He said, just imagine that man getting there in heaven. The angel says, okay, well, what do you, why should I let you into heaven? And the guy just said, oh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, whoa, hold on. Let, let me get my supervisor. Let me bring my supervisor here, okay? So the angelic supervisor comes over and is like, hey, so... Um, you understand justification by faith alone, right? And I goes, no, nah, never heard of it. What are those words? What does that mean? Well, okay, well, how about, how about the Bible, right? And doctrine of inspiration, like you get it, you know that. He's like, no, I never read it. I don't know anything about that. And you can see, you just imagine the, the angels being fresher. Well, what are you doing here? How come, how come you're here? And the guy just says, well, the man on the middle cross said that I could come. Man on the middle cross said I could come. That's a wise answer. And that's ultimately where all wisdom comes down to is just in the person of Jesus. It is revealed in, in him. And without Jesus, all of our wisdom is totally worthless. So, I mean, this morning we're just talking about wisdom. How do we get wisdom? Well, the book of Proverbs is meant to give, give it to us, but we get wisdom from fearing God. And really what we should be doing is we should be living in light of Jesus. And you know, wisdom isn't something that we have to buy at the store. It's not something that we have to memorize all of these Proverbs to get, though that would be good. The wisdom of God is free for all who would come to him. That Jesus is available to all of us, even that thief on the cross who was mocking Jesus not hours before. God's wisdom and the gospel of Jesus is available to all of us.
Shouldn't we take hold of it? Especially as believers. Shouldn't we live in fear and reverence of God at every moment? Not just at the beginning. I'm going to close us in prayer, invite our worship team to come back up and lead us. Lord, I just ask that you would give us wisdom, Lord. Lord, we, we often are so foolish. We often miss it. We often don't get really much of anything right. Yet, Lord, I am so grateful for your grace. I'm so grateful that your salvation is available to all of us, even that thief on the cross, even when we are on our deathbeds, even if we have nothing to offer you at all, which really the reality is none of us have anything to give you. Yet you died for us to give us salvation. Lord, would we live like that is true? Lord, if there are those in this room or those watching later who don't know you, I pray that they would take hold of you. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would help us to live with a fear of God, to live with a sense of awe and wonder and reverence, to live not just now, but to live after we leave this room and the rest of our day as if you really are God. As if Jesus really is coming again. And as if everything that we do really does matter into all of eternity. But Lord, would you help us? Because without you, we can't do that. Without you, our wisdom is worthless. And also without you, we, we can't live like you. We need your help. Would you aid us? Would you help us? And Lord, would you remind us that we all are just like that thief on the cross. That ultimately all of our, our answers, to the only way we can get into heaven is because you said that we could come. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to, to worship and to sing and to praise the God who is able. Amen. He is able. It's, uh, it's funny when God shows up and works things out. Lane and I didn't talk about this, but the, the benediction I picked for this month is from the end of Jude. And it begins by saying, now to him who is able. You hear the rest of this benediction. For, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful fourth. Go in peace.